Uh, I recommend that you have the Bible open at page 969, because we're going to jump around uh, the passage. <coughs> you don't feel well, and you go to see the doctor. You're examined and told that you're suffering from a rash. Your car breaks down, and it's towed to a garage. The mechanic checks it over and tells you the problem is that it won't start. Your company is struggling financially, so you engage a business consultant. Not that. We lost that one. Um, so you engage a business consultant. She analyzes your systems, procedures, and paperwork and concludes that you're not making a profit. All useless information. Because in each case, you're being given a superficial description of symptoms rather than an analysis of the root cause of your problem. <laughs> now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had got a similarly superficial way of explaining God's law which is recorded in the early books of the Old Testament of our Bible. But in today's passage, and indeed beyond it, Jesus goes to the root of issues which the law addressed. And in doing so, he spells out not only a problem for us to face, but also a standard for us to reach and actions for us to take. So first of all then, a problem for us to face. Now when the religious leaders of Jesus' day explained God's law, they were as superficial as our doctor, mechanic and business consultant. You're okay with God, they said, if you don't commit murder, verse 21. If you don't commit adultery, verse 27. If you don't break a vow made in God's name, verse 33. Well, that's not bad, is it? I imagine that not many of us have committed murder. I imagine that not all of us have committed adultery. And I suspect that we don't often make vows in the name of God. So it's relatively rare for us to break such vows. <coughs> well, look at what Jesus had to say about the teaching of the religious leaders. The whole context of today's passage is that Jesus is explaining what he says in verse 20, just before we started. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the religious leaders were basically saying, you're okay with God if you don't commit sins. Sins such as murder, adultery, breaking a vow made in God's name. But Jesus says, the nature of our problem isn't sins, it's sin. That's a horrible, old-fashioned word. And it's offensive to those who believe 
that we humans are becoming more civilized and refined as time goes on. Well, no, says Jesus. We may, as individuals and as a community, control and regulate aspects of our behavior. But sin, that is, rebellion from God's way, goes much deeper than what we do and don't do. It's a matter of the human heart. So murder is merely an extreme working out of a brooding anger, which we'll not forget, which refuses to be pacified, which seeks revenge, and which results from pride, vanity, hatred, and malice. Similarly, adultery is a working out of lustful thoughts which we allow to be stimulated. And breaking vows made in the name of God is a specific example of a broader problem of our lack of honesty and integrity. So are you doing any better than me when faced with Jesus' analysis of the problem which we face as humans, the problem of sin? <coughs> but if there's a problem for us to face, it gets worse. Because there's also a standard for us to reach. Look again at Jesus' words in verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has already addressed one idea, which is unacceptable to our modern ears, the idea of sin. Now here's another one, the idea of righteousness. The whole of our passage, and indeed beyond, is an explanation of Jesus' famous words in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, it's, it's easy to become smug and glibly satisfied with ourselves because there are specific things that we've not done, such as murder and adultery. Particularly, we can be like that if we compare ourselves with those who have committed such actions. But self-satisfaction, smugness and glibness are the very opposite of the righteousness of which Jesus speaks. Now, righteousness goes much deeper. Like sin, it's a matter of the heart. So what more specifically is Jesus saying in our passage? What, for instance, does he mean in verses 23 to 26 when he says, I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, or worthless, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Is Jesus saying that anger is always wrong? After all, there were occasions when he called the religious leaders blind and hypocrites. 
And there were, there were times when he said of the people listening to him, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. Clearly, there's a difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, a man of volatile temperament, spoke of righteous anger as an anger of love, one that is friendly to the person but hostile to the sin. Jesus' anger was directed at sin, not sinners. And that's the standard to which he calls you and me. And frankly, I have to admit that in the heat of the moment, it's often difficult to distinguish one from the other. Anger for the sin or anger for the sinner. And what does Jesus mean in verse 28 when he says, anyone who looks at another lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. You know, our vivid imagination is one of the many faculties which distinguish us humans from animals. And it's a gift of God. None of the world's art and little of our achievements would have been possible without imagination. Imagination enriches the quality of life. But like all God's good gifts, it can be degraded, and it needs to be used responsibly. So Jesus isn't talking about natural human desire, which is part of our human instinct and our human nature. After all, there's a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, which celebrates this in the form of a description of the uninhibited delight of the bride and the bridegroom with each other. Now, Jesus is speaking of the person who deliberately uses his or her eyes to awaken passion and to stimulate desire. What does Jesus mean in verses 34 to 36 when he says, Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. <coughs> Some Christians are very uneasy about submitting to oaths, even in a courtroom. Yet Jesus himself had no such qualms. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, when he himself was on trial, a high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. Jesus' key point comes in verse 37 where he says, Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. How do you react when you hear a politician in the course of an interview say, I'm glad you asked me that question, and I want to make my position absolutely clear. 
Maybe you're probably as cynical as I am in thinking, the last thing you want to do is to make your position clear. You're trying to wriggle out of the question. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day similarly tried to wriggle out of the Old Testament law. They said, an oath made in the name of God was legally binding. But any other oath wasn't binding. Jesus, by contrast, makes a simple and direct call to honesty and integrity. His message is that whenever we give our word, we invoke God. And our word itself, free of elaborate oaths, whether in the name of God or anything else, our word should be our bond. Anything beyond this, says Jesus, comes from the evil one. That means that times when a solemn oath is necessary, as in a law court, are illustrations of our failure to live up to God's standards of honesty and integrity. Now you'll notice that I've jumped over verses 31 and 32, where Jesus speaks about divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So what's Jesus' essential message here? Two points. First of all, he's mounting a defence of the institution of marriage which was under severe threat, both from Jewish religious teaching and from Roman law. Both of these allowed a man to divorce his wife for the most trivial of reasons, even burning the dinner. Whereas a woman had no right to end the marriage, whatever the behaviour of her husband. The one imposition made by Jewish religious leaders on men was to provide his former wife with a formal certificate of divorce. But Jesus sets the bar much higher because secondly, he places his teaching on divorce right in the middle of his teaching on lust and honesty. One or both, lust honesty is at the root of virtually every broken marriage. And Jesus' teaching on lust and honesty is directed part at least at married couples. So Jesus spells out a problem for us to face and a standard for us to reach. But he doesn't stop there because he also details some practical actions to take. So verses 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. Now let's unpack what Jesus is saying. If you look back at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, you'll see that Jesus was speaking in Galilee. 
The temple where animal sacrifices were made to God was in Jerusalem. That was three days' walk away. So Jesus is urging a person who needs to be reconciled to someone else to leave a live animal in front of the altar for the best part of a week while he trudges back home, makes his peace, and then returns to, to Jerusalem. Now think about it. That's longer than it would take today to do a round trip to New Zealand. So if you think of it in those terms, Jesus' instruction is ludicrous. But as is often the case, Jesus is exaggerating in order to make a point. And his point is that we should live day by day in such a way that when we come to worship God, there is no anger between us and others. And if there is, sorting it out is such an urgent matter that it should take precedence even over worshipping God. Because a barrier of anger between me and someone else will create a barrier between me and God. And we can easily fall into the trap of thinking that we can make our peace with God by busying ourselves in Christian service and ignoring our fractured relationship with another person. And if we do this, we're in danger of being like those religious leaders of Jesus' day who taught that going through the right religious ceremonies in the right way is what mattered. I'd already prepared much of this sermon, and then yesterday I found myself actually uh, talking to somebody who was in this situation and had been for a long time. And they had actually tried to do what Jesus is saying here, and it had failed. There's no guarantee of success. But this person had done what Jesus tells us to do, and in a sense, the responsibility had now passed people departing. Verses 25 and 26. Settle down the matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. When a murder is committed, we rightly expect the police to deal with it as a matter of urgency. In verses 23 to 26, Jesus is prompting us to that same sense of urgency in any situation where anger has fractured a relationship, whether it's within the context of the church or in a broader social context. I just wonder if that might be a message for some of us today. Now verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If we're honest, lust is for many of us a thorn in the flesh, or 
to put it less theologically, a pain in the neck. And in the light of that, it's obvious that Jesus' instruction is once again a deliberate exaggeration in order to make a point. What in essence Jesus is saying is, cut out of your life publications, people, viewing matter and situations which you know to be dangerous for your spiritual well-being. So if temptation comes through our eyes, don't give ourselves the chance to look. Behave as if we've already plucked out our eyes and flung them away. If temptation comes through our hands, through things that we do, don't give ourselves the chance to do that. Behave as if we'd actually cut off our hands and couldn't do those things. And if temptation comes to us through our feet, through places that we visit, don't go there. Behave as if we had cut off our feet and could not go there. You know, the posting of sentries is a common military practice to guard against the enemy. And what Jesus is proposing here is a form of moral sentry duty to guard against giving in to temptation. Remember, temptation itself is only the gateway to sin, but indulgence is like a skid slate. Today's passage is quite lengthy and it's very dense. Each one of the four paragraphs could be the focus of a much deeper message than I've been able to deliver this morning. And yet at the same time, the passage is only a small part of this story of Jesus. And it's a tiny part of God's message to us in the Bible as a whole. In itself, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount from which it comes, it's very daunting. And it could cause us to despair at our own hopelessness. But if we look at the broader message of the Bible, we see that God doesn't just bang on about the problem of sin and the high standards he expects on us, of us and the ways that we might achieve something like those standards. No, in Jesus, he sends us a saviour who not only lived by those standards, but also took on his shoulders at Calvary the burden of our failure. Yes, a passage like Matthew chapter 5 should challenge us to what the old prayer book called Amendment of Life. But it should also inspire us with an appreciation of the enormity of the salvation he has made possible. Salvation which is open to any of us who will acknowledge our failure before him and our need of the forgiveness and restoration which he can grant by the death and resurrection of his dear son Jesus.